0: Welcome back, everybody, and happy Tuesday. If you were watching my stories in the past week or so, you saw that I shared that Gayton and I have officially picked a wedding date, and it is happening a lot sooner than expected this year, Friday. June 19th. So at the time that you're listening to this, that's basically three months away. And I figured that, hey, if I wrote a book in like three months, I can plan a wedding in three months too. We officially booked that date just a couple of weeks ago. So it's officially confirmed as of now. And so basically we've had like three and a half months to plan it, but it's all good. I work better under pressure anyways. And Just last week, I actually got my dress, which is so exciting, and I went out on this one Friday and met my parents over at David's Bridal in the morning, and I tried on like, oh my God, like 20 or 30 dresses. And there were some really beautiful dresses, but at the end of the day, nothing really just nothing really felt right. I didn't love anything. And so I'd spent quite a few hours there. and then I left. and I was there with my parents and my cousin, who's actually my maid of honor. And we're not doing a big bridal party by any means. I just have a maid of honor, and then Gayton will have his best man. And that's it, keeping it, you know, simple. And so anyways, on my way home, I decided to drop into this little bridal shop by my house and I just felt really compelled to go in there and I was by myself. And oftentimes the best shopping happens when I am alone and on my own time. And so I walked in there and there was this gorgeous, stunning dress on the mannequin. And I was like, yes, that is the one I need to try it on. And tried it on and I got it off the rack. It was literally, I think it was like made for me. It was perfect. Like I barely have to do any alterations or anything to it. The top part of it is a little bit loose, kind of like around my chest. So I got to like bring that in and then it's a little bit long. So I got to alter that. But otherwise it's so, so pretty and I cannot wait for you to see photos of it. It's just going to be so amazing. So I'm so excited. And it's actually interesting, you know, if you're listening to this and you've been through this process before, then you know, you can probably relate that you really do have to go and try dresses on. Like I, like obviously, you know, looking at dresses online, I had this one style in mind and then it wasn't until I went into the stores and actually started to try them on. And then you really start to see obviously, you know, how it fits and feels for you. And so the style that I initially had in mind is not the style that I ended up buying. So you know it really makes a difference. It's one thing to be looking at dresses online. So just a heads up to -to soon-to-be brides, if you are looking at certain styles online, just know that it can really be quite different once you go to try them on and really get a feel for it and how how it fits and feels on your body. So I really thought I was going to get something that was... Like, not form fitting. The dress that I ended up with was a little bit more form fitting than I thought I would have gone with. It's like kind of, you know, a little bit sexy, but very elegant. And then the dresses that I kept looking at online, like, they were, I hate saying the word like princessy because that's so not my style, but. I guess in a way, like kind of had this sort of princessy feel and like a little bit more tulle and not like super big or puffy by any means, but I don't know. I kind of had that image in my head. And then as I tried those dresses on, they just really didn't do anything for me. And there was just way too much dress that I felt like I'd have to carry around with me and it just, just didn't feel right for me. So that was just my personal experience, but I'm so happy with the dress I ended up with and it's so beautiful and I can't wait for you to see it. It's hanging in my closet right now. And yes, since I've had it home, I've tried it on multiple times. (laughs) So... Yeah, I'm really excited for that and lots to do in these next few months. And we've got to go pick our flowers and we're pretty low key and pretty simple. I don't need anything that's crazy and over the top. So I want to keep things as simple and natural as much as possible. The venue that we picked is very earthy and nature. And there's like waterfalls outside and we're going to do an outdoor, an outdoor ceremony, you know, fingers crossed that the weather is beautiful. And so. I can't wait and I can't wait to share photos with you guys. So stay tuned and especially if you're watching over on my Insta stories, I'll be taking you through lots of behind the scenes and planning as we go through it. All right. So before we dive into our episode today, I want to highlight a few amazing products that I've been using. I was sharing them over on Insta stories and I got a lot of questions about them. And so I always love to come onto the podcast and just highlight them in a little bit more detail. So one of the products I was asked about was a fish oil fish oil is so important, getting those omega-3s in. I've currently been using the Omega Pro Balance from Canprev. And this is a really great product. It's a concentrated ratio of your EPA and your DHA omega-3 fatty acids, which are so essential for your cellular well-being. And every single cell in your body requires these fatty acids for maintaining good health. So it's really important that you get both these EPA and the DHA. It helps to reduce inflammation and help to prevent certain chronic diseases. Really important for cognition and just behavioral function. Really, really important for mothers during pregnancy so that you can really support the developing fetus but also help with like vision and prevent any nerve defects or anything like that. So, it's a really great product and I really love it. It is a goji lemon flavor. So, I do like to take the liquid over the capsules because I just I take a bunch of supplements in a day and as much as I can reduce the capsule intake, then I will do that. So that's why I really love the liquid and it's just I don't know, personally, I feel like it's so much easier to take and it does not taste bad. So trust me, like you really have to trust me on this one. It doesn't taste bad at all. Most fish oil on the market like nowadays, they really have come a long way. Like it's not going to taste bad. Most of them are like a citrusy flavor or something. This is a goji lemon and it does taste it's got that mix of like berry and citrus flavor to it. So it's really quite good and that's what I've been taking every day and i know that lots of people are freaking out lately because of the coronavirus and you know immune support and all of that so your omegas are just not necessarily like an immune support they will support immune health for sure but it is really something that just supports you from like head to toe it's supporting your brain health your heart health inflammation and joint pain your hormones cellular health it's just super foundational so i really love that product and then Canprev, you know, I've been using lots of products from them. I love the Adrenal Chill, super important for our immune support because if you are under a lot of stress, that's going to lower your immunity, which can cause you to catch the cold or the flu or something like that. And so you really wanna support your adrenal health, that's key. So I've been loving the Adrenal Chill. And then the Myco10, love this product. You guys have heard me speak about it before and I was also sharing it in my stories. I have a really great elixir that I love to make with the Myco10, which is basically a combination of some antioxidants with about seven different medicinal mushrooms. And those medicinal mushrooms are amazing for immune support. They modulate the immune system. So they're not like overstimulating the immune system and they are wonderful for hormonal health, wonderful for the brain, for the heart, as well as for adrenal health and for stress. So I really, really love them. And I just make like a nice little elixir with that. So the Myco10, amazing product. And... You can add it into like your coffee or your smoothie or anything like that. You just put a scoop in and and you're good to go. And then specifically from the immune standpoint, the oregano oil that I use from North American Herb and Spice, that's a fantastic product. That is a product that I have been using for probably 15 years. We always, always, always have that oregano oil on hand at home. So that is great for immune support and it's very antibacterial has some antiviral properties to it as well, so which is really going to be key during this time. And if you order anything from the North American Herb and Spice website, be sure to use the coupon code HOLISTIC15 so that you can save 15% off. You can use that discount code on any of their products and they do international shipping, which is really wonderful. And if you tuned into the episode last week, I was highlighting a few of their other products. You've heard me talk about the Hempanol P. They have amazing hemp products that I highly suggest you check out. And their hemp products are combined with some amazing herbs. And so the hemp and all PM, for example, is combined with some oregano oil and some cinnamon and then hops and chamomile. So it's a really great blend. They also have a, I think it's called canna curcumin or canna cumin, which is basically like hemp oil combined with turmeric oil, which is really wonderful. And then that has some rosemary and oregano and cinnamon and ginger and like really potent. So really great immune supportive and antibacterial herbs and spices and all that kind of stuff. And it's really great. So check out their hemp line of products and also check out the live latte and the Oshawa Milk. Those are really great products too that I've also been throwing into my elixir. So again, the coupon code is HOLISTIC15 and head on over to northamericanherbandspice.com. As for the Canprev products, unfortunately, I don't have a coupon code because you have to get them basically at any health food store here in Canada there's nowhere specifically for me to direct you to go order. You can definitely order off of well.ca, nationalnutrition.com, and also naturesource.com, or maybe it's .ca. But you can check out those sites online and those websites will ship to the US. So if you want to get your hands on any Canprev, then by all means, just order those online. And then I will try to see if I can hook up some amazing discounts. To be clear, I don't make commissions off of these orders. We're just passing on an amazing discount so that you guys can save. Okay. So let's dive into our episode today. It's a really, really fascinating one. So I interviewed a neuroscientist and we dove into all things brain health, specifically the female brain. And it's such an interesting conversation because, of course, on this podcast, we dive into all of these different health areas and nutrition and you know all kinds of things that are going to support your well-being. But looking at it from the standpoint of a neuroscientist is very different. And there's obviously so much heavy research and studies and there was a lot that was shared today that you know I just wasn't aware of and it was really cool to hear it from this standpoint so you guys are going to learn a lot and Sarah my guest today we dove into the neuroscience of women's health hormones and happiness the difference between the male and the female brain and how our brain will actually impact our emotions and behaviors we dove into the different life stages in a woman's life and how, you know, whether you're a teenager or you are in your twenties, what's going on with your brain and then how that shifts to when you become pregnant and then menopausal and just really, really interesting. And then we finished off with some really simple day-to-day things that you can do to optimize and support the health of your brain. And the strategies that Sarah shared today are so simple that you can all do them. And you might be surprised by them. They are things I often talk about. So I really am excited for this episode and it's just a really different conversation to have. And I really hope you enjoy it. So, my guest today is Dr. Sarah McKay. She is a neuroscientist and a science communicator who specializes in translating brain science research into simple, actionable strategies for peak performance, creativity, health, and well being. She grew up in New Zealand, where she completed her Bachelor of Science at Otega University, then headed to Oxford University for her PhD. She sums up her thesis with the words nature, nurture, and neuroplasticity. After five years of postdoctoral research, Sarah hung up her lab coach to pursue a career in science communications. She is the author of The Woman's Brain Book, The Neuroscience of Health, Hormones, and Happiness, and the director of the Neuroscience Academy, which offers professional development program in applied neuroscience and brain health. In 2019, she hosted an episode of ABC Catalyst, exploring brain health, biohacking, and longevity. I am so excited for today's episode. So let's dive in and enjoy. Hello, Sarah. Thanks so much for joining me on the podcast today. Really excited to have you here.
1: Oh, thank you so much for inviting me.
0: Yes, my pleasure. And I'd love it if we can dive into a little bit about your story and who you are and what it is that you do before we
1: dive in. Yeah, sure. Well, people, I'm not sure whether they can tell initially from my accent, but I grew up in New Zealand. I was one of those kids who, I guess, I always had my head stuck in a book, and I loved school, and I loved learning, and I had a very happy childhood. I'm very fortunate to have grown up in the part of the world that I did, and I think kiwi women are really having our moment right now. Awesome. I um, headed off to university and interestingly, in my, my first year, I was in a psychology lecture and read this fantastic book called The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat, which is written by a neurologist called Oliver Sacks. And some of your listeners may have, have read the book or heard of it. And it was really, Sacks was, was an incredible storyteller and he wrote up case studies of the kind of various bizarre and unusual neurological disorders that some of his patients presented to him. And I was just, from that moment on, utterly captivated by the human mind and brain and, you know, all of these, you know, unusual problems that can cause us to sort of think and feel and behave in such bizarre ways. Now, And right about that time, so this is in the early 90s, neuroscience was a very, very new discipline in the universities and in particular in New Zealand A new degree of the subject neuroscience had been essentially set up that year, which drew the neuro component from psychology and physiology and pharmacology and anatomy and psychiatry and, and pulled it all together for this new degree discipline. So I headed off there and my kind of life course was really set, loved every moment of all of my studies at university. And then I was incredibly fortunate to head off to Oxford University in the UK. I won a scholarship there to study my master's and my PhD at Oxford another four glorious years there <laughs> learning about the brain I met my beautiful husband who was an Irishman studying economics Amazing. and then we on a little bit of a whim moved to Sydney Australia in 2002 for a year just thought that it would be a fun warm sunny happy place in the world to live and we've never left so <laughs> I live in the northern beaches of Sydney I did about five or six years medical postdoc research in universities as, an, as a neuroscience researcher and academic. And then about 12 years ago now, I saw, you know, kind of, I guess I loved the science, but after a bit of soul searching, decided that you know, the work I wanted to do in the world was taking the work that all these amazing researchers and academics do in university and and share those stories with the general public. And so I set up my own business about 12 years ago now in science communications, essentially. And ever since then, that's really what I've done and specializing in in neuroscience. Like, What can we take from the amazing work that's being done in the research lab and how can we translate that into really useful tools and strategies and stories for everyone's life and, and daily work?
0: That's really amazing. And so this has led you to write... This amazing book, Demystifying the Female Brain, and you dive into the neuroscience of women's health, hormones, and happiness. You know, why specifically did you dive into this area?
1: And that's really interesting. And it's funny, you call it Demystifying the Female Brain. It's got different titles in different countries. Oh, probably, yeah. I saw you sharing it. If you've got the UK version, it was published under Demystifying the Female Brain. And in the US and Australia, it's the Women's Brain book really just depends on what the publisher decides to yes, resonate definitely with an audience I call it in her head <laughs> in her head that's a good one yeah that's kind of what I wanted to call it but anyway publishers you know do what they think is best for each particular territory that's right look I mean I wasn't really particularly that keen on writing a book to be honest because I've written enough academic papers and theses to know that there's a great degree of thought and effort has to go into writing something that's really evidence-based, in particular a subject like neuroscience, which is incredibly broad and deep. But I was approached by a publisher who was very keen that I write a book and I was like, I don't really have a book idea in me. And then we had a chat over coffee and she's very charismatic and dynamic and kind of twisted my arm. But she asked me what I had ever written before for an audience that had resonated and I write a lot for the ABC here in Australia and had written an article on menopause. And brain fog and that many women experience forgetfulness and sort of I suppose the colloquial term is brain fog during this point of life and mistakenly think it's the early signs of Alzheimer's and dementia and completely freak out. Right. And it was really just a hey look don't worry there's stuff that we can do to help these are the reasons why and it really resonated and so my publisher was like, oh, I wrote to write a book on menopause. And I was like, because I'm 40 at that time. I'm now 45. Right, <laughs> and, right. And um, so it's, it seems a little more relevant now, let me say. But she then asked me about pregnancy and said, well, is baby brain a thing? And I was like, well, I'm from New Zealand. We don't do baby brain there because obviously we have prime ministers who can have babies and function quite well, thanks. Anyway, that kind of got me thinking that there were so many aspects of life as a female, as a woman, and so many sort of stories that we tell and narratives and obviously life transitions we go through. And I hadn't really before considered them through the lens of neuroscience. So I thought, well, I haven't thought of that. And I've been a neuroscience for 25 years. I'm not saying no one else had thought of that. But I thought, well, that would be a really interesting topic to explore. Because really, if I was going to write a book, it had to be something that I was really curious about and learning rather than just writing stuff that I already knew and so it took me on this incredible journey sort of through the female lifespan from womb to tomb as I say exploring aspects of girlhood and puberty menstrual cycle adolescence you know the teenage years took a look at mental health pregnancy motherhood menopause and into old age just that kind of lifetime journey and what happens to our brains at each of those points in the lifespan? What is the sort of neural and nervous system control of these life changes? And in turn, how do those experiences shape and sculpt the brain?
0: That's really fascinating. So, a lot of our listeners, you know, age range, I would say a lot of our listeners are from anywhere from mid-20s up to even 60. So maybe we can kind of go through some of these different life phases from, you know, 20s to 60s. Like what is really happening there with the brain? What's changing? How is this really impacting our health, hormonal health? If we can dive into that, that would be really interesting.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I suppose if we look at our sort of early, mid, late 20s, the brain is still kind of going through its sort of natural phase of development, and I guess this idea is more well-known now, but even certainly when I was doing my studies in Oxford, it was not a disciplined field that the brain goes through a great degree of change during the adolescent years and really is still going through a lot of those developmental phases into your early 20s and mid-20s. The part of the brain that's kind of going through it's what we would call its greatest degree of plasticity, its ability to be shaped and sculpted by experience, a lot of these kind of prefrontal cortical areas are the part of the brain that's sort of in behind your forehead, but is involved with a lot of these kind of grown up attributes of things like planning and strategy, judgment, reasoning, emotional regulation, and social cognition. And so if we look at something like sort of your sense of self in the context of the people around you. That's a pretty clear shift from kind of childhood through those early teenage years, and I see it now because I have two boys who, one of whom sort of, you know, just started at high school, and you see there's a real shift, a very natural shift from you know, family to friends being the most important. And that's absolutely right. normal and, and great and wonderful. But what we sort of see is a lot of those changes are reflected in what is happening in the brain, in particular the parts of the brain involved with social cognition, with theory of mind, which is that ability to think about what other people are thinking and feeling, regions of the brain involved with empathy. So what are other people Feeling, and we see that those parts of the brain are undergoing a great degree of what we call plasticity. So the experiences that mat- that happen, really matter to physically sculpting the brains. So interestingly, the outer layers of the brain, the cortex, get slightly thinner when we go through adolescence and into our 20s, and people kind of freak out about that because they think of a part of the brain shrinking, it must be bad. But that's a perfectly normal and healthy part of brain development whereby connections that are not needed are removed. It's a bit like pruning, and it's kind of makes the brain more lean and sort of streamlined, and it's better at doing what it does. So the experiences, particularly the social experiences we have, through our teenage years and those early kind of years of our 20s are really important for not just shaping our identity, but shaping our brain. So, you really want to ensure if you're a parent or a, someone who works with young people, like the, the, the more positive life experiences we can have at that point in time are, are definitely the ones that, that you want to have. We see, you know, especially in those early years, the emergence of what we call the imaginary audience, that kind of concern that everyone else is thinking about me and what I'm doing. Right really everyone's just thinking about themselves to be perfectly honest but we don't really <laughs> think that and really as we kind of go through our 20s hopefully we kind of mature and our and our thought processes about our place in the world our identity and who we are who, who is this new tribe and if you think back if you're over the age of about 35 or 40 if you think back what are the kind of strongest memories you have? What is the music that you really resonates with you? with the movies that really shaped who you are, the parties you went to? And often it's those kind of late teens, early 20 years when our identity is being shaped, but also when those parts of the brain are most plastic. And we call that the reminiscence bump and it's a very clearly described feature. So, you know, make sure those years are good years if you're in them. Gosh, you're lucky if you're still in For them. Sure. <laughs> and they were like the... the best times in my life, my years when I was at university, I just had a ball. I loved it. And, you know, the music I think of, because I, I, that was kind of in the 90s for me, so, you know, that's like kind of brick pop, like Oasis, Wonderwall, you know, awesome. when I when we were listening to Blur, you know, all of that kind of yes. brick pop music is really, really resonates with, with me. So that's kind of, you know, your 20s and then for women often their, their 30s is when, I mean, it can happen earlier, it can happen later, but, you know, Say <laughs> you end up having a baby, right? What is really and this I'm not this is the order you do things, but let's just address it in that order. <laughs> yeah, way. it's Hopefully all good. You're it you're Hopefully, you're not doing it when you're 15. But when one of the the most significant changes we see in terms of the structure of the brain changing is actually during a woman's first pregnancy. Now, this was some research that was first published right when I was first starting to write the book. And I'm like, oh, thank goodness that this, this came out. And it's one of my favorite pieces of research to emerge. A study was done in the Netherlands by a researcher called Alzheimer an unusual surname. And she was really interested in what happens to the structure of women's brains during pregnancy. So they recruited a large cohort of couples who were trying to fall pregnant. They did MRI scans on these women. So an MRI scan is kind of like a photo of the structure of your brain. And then they imaged the women's brains before and immediately after their first pregnancy. And then there was a group of women who weren't pregnant and they imaged them over the same amount of time. And they also took photos of the brain, uh, scans of the brains of the fathers of the babies, the partners of the women. Right. There's another control. And it turns out that over that first pregnancy, the same brain region in all of these women showed, again, considerable shrinkage. And it was the part of the brain, interestingly, that we do see start to change during adolescence, but it was so striking in these women. And it was a part of the brain involved with theory of mind and empathy. And what we think is happening is that, Pregnancy doesn't just sort of prepare a woman's body to give birth. I mean, birth is one moment, and then to nurture that baby once it's born. But it's maybe somehow the biochemical changes that take place during pregnancy sculpt women's brains so that their mind is kind of prepared for motherhood. Now, that doesn't mean that simply because you've had a pregnancy, you're going to be the world's most empathic mother and, you know, Be able to pull other people into your tribe and interact with your baby. But certainly, if we look to the mammalian kingdom, because we're part of the mammalian kingdom, we're not that. We like to think we're a wee bit special, but quite frankly, we're just another one of the animals in the mammalian kingdom. If we look to them, and they don't read books on what to expect when they're expecting them, (laughs) assumptions about where life is going to lead them, like we do which massively shapes and sculpts our expectations of our health and therefore our health outcomes. But if we look to them that we see in all other mammals, mammals who go through a pregnancy, we we see regions of the brain undergoing significant structural change. And typically if we're to look at, say, a cat or a mouse or a fox, it will be the part of the brain involved with maternal instincts. Now, in humans, maternal instincts don't automatically emerge in every um, a woman but it is kind of a, this you know nature mother nature's biological shortcut to hope that we are going to you know tend and care for the baby of course and say if you've ever had a cat that's had kittens you might and me and my sister used to do this when we were teenagers every we cat had kittens and you know you'd place when the kittens were getting a little bit older. You put them at kind of different corners of the room and the mother cat would always scurry around and kind of bring them all together. I mean, that's kind of a maternal instinct. She's kind of clustering them all together with her. And that behaviour emerges via pregnancy. Now, we think, we don't know, but we assume because the changes were seen quite soon after pregnancy that it wasn't the act of mothering and it wasn't the act of parenting because the dads didn't show the same changes. And these were engaged dads in the Netherlands, you know, dads are pretty engaged in looking after their kids, thanks to the sort of the way that the government structures everything over there. Right. So, we think it is probably the biochemical or hormonal changes that we see going through through a pregnancy. Because you, you guys are all into hormones, you know that when you go through a pregnancy, you kind of get a thousandfold increase of hormones, estrogen in particular. Right. you Get a bigger dose of estrogen in a pregnancy than you get the entire rest of your lifespan. And estrogen is great. We love estrogen. Can you know it's released from our ovaries and and is, is easily able to enter the brain. And there are receptors for estrogen throughout the brain. And we think it's probably that that was having the sculpting effect. We don't know, right? Because we can't really test it in adult human women. We think that's probably what was was sculpting women's brain. So that, interestingly, that's one of the biggest structural changes we see through the entire lifespan of a, of, a, of a woman is um during that first pregnancy, which I think is quite interesting.
0: Yeah, it's very fascinating. Mm. And then, you know, as women age, there's obviously a lot of hormonal decline that happens. You know, what is happening as as these hormones start to decline, the impact that it has on the health of our brain?
1: Yeah, well, so if you're in your 40s or early 50s, you'd be pretty familiar with discussions around menopause and, and we're very fortunate that now you know, we, we talk about all of these things. In my generation, certainly Gen X, and I'm 45 now, you know, me and my friends talk about this all the time because once you kind of, we tend to think about menopause as being when you're, I guess, when your periods your menstrual cycles stop, but those sort of five, six, seven years leading up to that point in time, we do sort of start to see this roller coastering of hormones where, you know, one month, you know, your body's being flooded with those hormones that we've been used to through our entire lifespan in the next month there might be a few fits and starts and it's almost like the conversation starts to falter. Right. And we certainly know that there's an ongoing conversation between the brain, the hypothalamus, the pituitary, which is releasing various hormones which stimulate the ovaries and then in turn the ovarian hormones are released into our bloodstream and are able to enter our brain. So there's a continuing conversation. When you go through puberty, it's almost like the brain sends a signal to the ovaries It is time to start releasing hormones. The other end, when you're going through menopause, the ovaries sort of start to run out of steam a little bit, and so they're sending the signals to the brain. Now, I guess the most common symptom that women experience leading up to menopause in that term, that sort of phase we now know as perimenopause, in about 75% of women that would be hot flashes or hot flushes, or night sweats when you kind of, your thermoregulation kind of starts to go a bit haywire and you either get really hot really easily or really cold really easily. And we know in a part of the brain called the hypothalamus, we really have our sort of our heat thermostat and that's set and it is influenced by ovarian hormones. So what we think, we're not entirely sure, but certainly the neuroscience and the mammalian kingdom, and also in what we can gather from human women is that the the estrogen is kind of like making that thermostat narrower. So the kind of the top level has been brought down and the bottom level has been brought up. So you might only need a really small increase in temperature to kind of go above the top level of the thermostat and your brain sends a signal to the rest of the body, it's really hot. Right. You then sweat, you flush, you kick off your clothes or you wake up at night and you're all hot and sweaty and you kick off your blankets. And we're pretty sure that it's hormonal because one of the most effective treatments for women who are suffering hot flashes or night sweats is to replace those hormones. So if you put, you, you choose to take, say, HRT or perhaps your perimenopause, you could stay or go back onto the oral contraceptive pill to kind of tramline your hormones and replace the estrogen, then we see the hot flashes reducing. So we're pretty sure that it's definitely a hormonal thing. Now we have a bit of a chicken and egg scenario during menopause because you know, That's the most significant symptom, but women have a lot of other things going on, and often that kind of brain fog, the fuzziness, we don't know. Is that caused by the hot flashes waking you up at night and so you've got disrupted sleep? Is your sleep disrupted anyway? We don't know whether disrupted sleep perhaps can trigger a hot flash at the same time. There's a real chicken and egg scenario there. We haven't been able to unpack that. Every woman would have a different sort of story. Emotional symptoms, you know, feeling a bit more depressed or anxious Your late 40s and early 50s were a really complex time in life. You're typically at the peak of your career. If you've got kids, they're often teenagers. You can have a bit of a dueling hormonal house there. If you've got, you know, young people going through all of the changes that they go through when they're perhaps entering high school or university for the first time. If you might have been with a partner for a couple of decades, you know, you're starting to sort of think about who you are again in relationship to the world. So, certainly every woman's experience at this point in time differs. Part of it is these hormonal changes, but there's also a massive time to reflect on your identity. And a lot of that also then does play a role in influencing, you know, your personal individual experience.
0: For sure. So I'd love to switch gears and talk about the male brain for a second because I'm sure that there's quite the difference between the male and the female brain if we can dive into that for a moment
1: yeah what well, was interesting because when I said I was I used to say I was writing a book about the female brain and then the first question people would always ask me was what is the difference between the male and the female brain I'm going and then I started saying I was writing a book on women's health people stopped asking me that question because I was really writing a book on like periods and puberty the pill not Female brains here, male brains there, and I think well, there's a massive misunderstanding that male brains and female brains are entirely different species, and we could kind of peer inside someone's skull and would find a pink brain, and we could put all the women on one side of the room, <laughs> and we could put all the men on the other side, right? If we are a good neuroscientist, then we would go, right, well, we could approach this in two ways. We could take a global look at the the size, the shape, the structure of the brain, and if we were to scan two brains, we would never be able to know whether it was a male or a female at all by the structure. And if we were to then start looking at various different aspects of physiological function, again, we're not going to really find any differences. We might start to find really, really subtle differences in the microarchitecture and wiring of very small regions of the brain. For example, in the hypothalamus, the circuits that women have that control ovulation don't control ovulation in men, but they are involved with the release of hormones that right. maybe you know influence various other aspects. When we start to kind of look at, you know, do we, are men, all men this way and a woman that way? We really start falling into these ridiculous and very old-fashioned ideas around around gender stereotyping. And if you were to take a strongly feminist perspective and go, well, a lot of the differences that we see between males and females are learned. They, they aren't there from birth. They sort of start emerging during childhood and they're largely influenced by how children are raised, the environment they're in, the people that they interact with then that, interestingly, narrative is reflected very much in a lot of the neuroscience looking at the structure and function of brains. And I've talked a bit about this concept of of plasticity. We're very happy to accept the idea that brains are shaped and sculpted by the experiences we have and certainly the experiences that little boys and little girls have from the moment they're born are different, In the US, you've got this phenomenon of gender reveal parties, which I think are utterly ridiculous. <laughs> you know, It's a boy or it's a girl before it's even born, and they're not gender reveal. They're sex reveal, but no one wants to have a sex party for an unborn baby because that's just weird. But, I mean, children are born, they're not even born into a gendered world. There are gendered expectations of pink and blue before they're even born. So it's hardly surprising that differences in behaviours emerge when experiences shape and sculpt the brain. Now there are a few differences that we might see if we're to do cognitive testing like IQ, all the kind of large scale stuff you're not going to see anything, no differences between male or females and I would just like to highlight again being from New Zealand, the effectiveness of our female Prime Minister throughout her pregnancy and the great work that she's done just look look at her as a female leader, she's been extraordinary If we were to look at, you know, get in and do really, you know, very narrow cognitive testing on males and females, the biggest difference that we see in a cognitive test is the ability to rotate a 3D object in your mind's eye. So, the average male is better than that and the average female, but there's plenty of women who are really good at that and plenty of men that are pretty hopeless. Because right. what we see is if we go and look at a 1,000 men and a 1,000 women, we see a normal distribution, and normal distribution curves always overlap. It's a bit like if we look at the height of a 1,000 men and a 1,000 women, the average male may be taller than the average female, but I've got a sister who's six foot tall, so she's taller than most men. But you know, it's about looking at how different is this difference that we are so determined to find. And you know, that's what we really need to be focusing on is what is the specific difference we're curious about rather than assuming everything is different, and then how different is that difference? And I certainly talk about that in the first chapter of the book. We can talk, I mean, there's other one another study that I'm particularly fond of that I I was talking about in the book, comes out of the journal Science, which is a top flight academic journal and it was really looking at this, you know, this it's a bit of that sort of Cheryl Sandberg lean in. Why is it that men ask for, you know, a raise or a promotion and women don't? Where does that kind of confidence that men have? Why are they the first ones to put up their hand and ask a question in a talk versus the women in the room? And we see that emergence, it kind of starts at about ages sort of seven and eight. Ages five and six, little girls are as confident as little boys, putting their hands up and saying, "I'll play the game for the super smart kids. I'm going to grow up to be the famous inventor scientist who's going to save the world from climate change." Right. All of those little girls, little boys, will put their hands up. Once they reach ages seven or eight, do you want to play the game that's been designed for really, really smart kids? All the boys go, "Yeah, I do," and all the little girls go, "That's the game for the boys. Who's going to grow up to be the scientist that saves the world? Saves the world from?" climate change. The boys will put their hands up. The girls will go, oh, it'll probably be a man. And so there's something happening.
0: Interesting.
1: About between the ages of five, six, seven, and eight. Well, it's not hormonal because there's nothing happens at that point in time hormonally in kids. They're learning. They're picking this up. Now, whether it's from, it's not necessarily from parents, it's probably just this, this world that they live in in general, starts to have different expectations of little girls sitting and behaving quietly. And, you know, the boys, it doesn't matter, they can be rambunctious and put their hands up and and be confident. So I think we need to be really careful not to default back to, oh, the brain is different, and therefore that explains any differences that we do see. We need to be, ask far more sophisticated and nuanced questions when we sort of even approach that question.
0: Right. Yeah. And I was thinking like in terms of especially for men and like emotions and behavior. We obviously know that men and women are very different hormonally and those hormones will impact the brain. And in turn, there will definitely be a difference there between emotional behavior via men and women. So maybe you can speak to that a little
1: bit. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's very interesting. I don't believe, and certainly the neuroscience research doesn't support that hormones are the sole provider of emotions. And if we look at any of the careful studies that have done looking at the role of hormones influencing emotions, it doesn't necessarily fall out in that kind of sort of traditional story that we tell ourselves, women are emotional because of our hormones Hormone and stoic. So I looked at that in quite a lot of detail because I, again, in a number of different ways, but using the menstrual cycle as one example, because I was like, well, where is the story that women are emotional and it's due to our hormones come from? And men and men aren't because they don't have hormones. I mean, again, you know, you can fall back into the feminist narrative and it pretty much pushes against that. Interestingly, right. so does the careful neuroscience that's been done. So hormones have absolutely no bearing on Cognitive capacity, our ability to all of those kind of thinking tasks that we can do, and that's why you know women can have jobs and you know read books and do crosswords and be air traffic controllers, all of those kinds of things. We, we all know that. This idea that they are the sole provider of our hormones, as well as is, interestingly, isn't in, because so I, I couldn't find any good studies that showed that fluctuations in hormones say just across the menstrual cycle influence any careful measures of emotions. I thought, well that's kind of counterintuitive, right? So I took a look at PMS or PMT, which is this kind of you know, physical and emotional experience that a lot of women apparently have in that week before their period. You get cranky, you get emotional, you get weepy. Right. Oh, it's hormones. And I came across a meta-analysis, which is, for those who don't know what a meta-analysis is, We'd be, careful, we'd be familiar with the concept there is power in numbers. The more data points you have, the more certain that you can make a claim. And this was looking at a meta-analysis of PMS symptoms globally. And it went and looked at different rates reported of PMS in different countries around the world. And it varied, the emotional symptoms of PMS varied more than you can even believe so if you went into some countries France and Switzerland for example the reported rate of women saying yeah I have emotional symptoms of PMS is around 10 to 15 percent you go from France over the border to Spain 50 percent of Spanish women say oh yeah I get PMS you're noodling way all around the world you could land in somewhere in the Middle East Iran for example 95 percent of women putting their hands up and saying yes I have emotional symptoms so 10% all the way to 95%, hardly anyone to almost everyone. What differed wasn't, well, I don't know what it was apart from the country you live in, the society and the culture in which you live determines whether you put your hand up or not to say, well, I suffer these symptoms of PMS. So there's a Kiwi researcher in women's health Psychiatrist Sarah Romans, and she kind of had the same thought. Obviously, she's a particular subset of women who come to her with issues because she's a psychiatrist. She was like, why are we blaming our hormones whenever we are emotional? She said, I just don't believe that every emotional issue a female has is due to hormonal issues. So she's, sure. she designed a very clever study called the Mood and Daily Life Study, um, and so women were given an, a, an app and it popped up on their phone every day and they had to record the day of their menstrual cycle. So these were women who had a healthy um, monthly menstrual cycle. They went on the pill, they went pregnant, they went, you know, men- menopausal. Day of the menstrual cycle, they had to write, grade their physical health that day, their emotional status, and they were given the same number of positive and negative and neutral emotions to choose from because a lot of studies of women's emotions – Kind of like 12 negative emotions and two positive ones. That immediately skews the data. Interesting. And that, you know, we've got this massive range of negative and not right. anything, whatever happens. So emotional valence, how sort of stressed, that levels of stress and how socially supported they were. The women were not told it was a study looking at PMS, mood and daily life. Now, so there were hundreds of women in the study, many, many ran over the course of a year or so, many, many hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of menstrual cycles. What was really fascinating was what was the strongest correlation between emotional status it certainly was not day of menstrual cycle. In fact, only 2 in 20 women, so about 5 to 10% of women, showed any clear variation of hormones and emotions. So 2 in 20 of the women, were we were seeing that their hormonal status at the day of the month influenced their emotions but for the rest of the woman the large degree of the woman hormones were not the strongest influence over their emotions in fact it was how stressed out they were feeling their physical health but the strongest indicator was social support whether they felt part of a socially supported network whether they felt understood whether they felt that there was someone that they could call on that particular day just sort of help them through. That was the strongest predictor, which is really interesting. And that kind of came up time and time again in the research that I was doing. And what's really interesting is depending on which country you, you you would go into, I assume, but certainly when that study is repeated and you prime the woman, say, this is a study looking at PMS. Right. The data changes because women then sure. kind of start attributing the time of the month to their emotional status, and we understand, contemporary understanding in neuroscience of how emotions are made is not that they are hardwired into us and we have this kind of about five or six that we automatically feel based on our biology. Rather, our brains learn to predict our emotional status based on the context, based on our experiences and based on what is happening in our bodies. So we have kind of like every other aspect of our brain's sense and perceive and think and feel are constantly predicting in advance. So if you are expecting to feel pretty cranky right. depending on the time of the month, then of course you will. So as I said to Sarah Romans in a conversation, I said, well, look, does this mean that it's all in your head, PMS? She said, well, no, because in some woman, it is a real phenomenon and, and emotions are real things, but what is the cause of them? Is it the stories we're telling ourselves? Is the narrative around PMS in Iran completely different than it is in France? Certainly yeah. it must be very different in France and Switzerland and in Spain. Hormones are not the sole provider of our emotional state. And I think that's really good news, right? Because Absolutely. we can't necessarily do a lot about our hormones all of the time. We can try our best to be healthy and eat the right food and exercise and get enough sleep and that will influence them. But The stronger influence we've got so much more agency you know what is our social support networks like could we write ourselves a social prescription to you know seek out more social connection and love and support I mean from the moment we're born that's what a baby needs it needs connection it needs interaction and it doesn't matter which point in the lifespan you look at and certainly throughout the book that I looked at that all of these kind of large life transitions we go through the strongest indicator of a positive emotional experience was how socially supported someone was during that phase of life. So I just think it's a, just a really interesting way to have a more nuanced discussion about women's health.
0: Absolutely. I mean, this leads me to think, you know, how does social connections and community improve the health of our brain?
1: absolutely fundamental and as I said I mean from the moment we're born you could raise a child with enough you know food and and water and and shelter but if that child is not getting you know it doesn't form an attachment and doesn't have warm loving interactions with the carer that is far more damaging than almost anything I mean because we would know that anecdotally we know that from a lot of studies that have been done around the world looking kind of longitudinal studies we would call it through the lifespan so some of your listeners may be familiar with the, the Romanian orphans so in the kind of early 90s there was a bit of an overthrow it was kind of the regime that was there and it turned out that it was all these poor little kids in these orphanages who had been given shelter food and water but it had never formed a connection with the carer and it had never really been kind of given that kind of love and nurturing and attention that little babies and, and small children fundamentally require for normal development now even if those children were adopted into very loving families They continue, they're all now kind of in their 30s, they continue to have mental health, physical health, social problems. They take up, you know, a fair share of the prison system in the UK, a lot of the sort of social services that are required, a lot of the health services that are required, and that came solely about through lack of social warmth and connection. And We have, you know, more examples of that, and I talk about a lot of them in the book. Once you sort of start digging into what is the strongest determinant of mental health issues when you have a, a young person entering into say perhaps high school. And I've been dealing with this with my son who went off to high school where he didn't know anyone. He has struggled and he's been emotional and it's been difficult. It's not hormones. He didn't know anyone in the new school For He sure. just struggled to make new friends yeah. gone from being in the middle of a great tribe of mates to now, Oh my goodness, I don't know anyone. And we have just had to take such special care and nurture him through that process because he's lost the connections that he's always had. And that has been one of the most difficult times he's gone through in his life so far. We know that if you're a mum with a new baby, what's you know one of the most important things that we can do to help you with your transition to motherhood is to provide you with support other people to lean on. Someone of else course. has to take the baby out of your arms for a while and give you a break. It doesn't matter at which point in the lifespan we talk about that social prescription, is almost one of the most important things we can do because we're tribal animals. That's how we evolved to be connected with and surrounded by other people instead of, you know, being all alone and saying, wow, what is this scary, risky thing? What is this stress that's happening to me? There's power that comes from instead of saying, what is this that's happening to me? How is this affecting us and how are we going to face it? There is so much power that comes from being part of a group of people who support each other.
0: Absolutely. And so when we think about overall, you know, what we can do day to day to support and optimize the health of our brain, we obviously know social connections and community is one of those things. You know, what other areas are things that we really want to be looking at to optimize our brain health?
1: Look, I think... People are really fond of talking about nutrition, and I kind of think it's one of the most dull subjects out there in the world. Eat more vegetables, eat less junk food. (laughs) It's really not difficult. Well, it's difficult, but the message is not that.
0: Yeah. You know, it's one thing to talk about it, it's another thing to do it.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And really, just eat more veggies, I like to kind of think, you know, we can look at the people who have lived the longest in the world and the longer who, who lives the longest healthy life, how have they lived, and also, you know, let's look to our evolutionary past. How do we evolve? We're animals evolved on this planet that rotates around the sun. So what is the kind of respect we have for that? Most of us have lost that, particularly people who live in cities. So I think the, the absolute bedrock of all good health is sleep and it's kind of dismissed or it's glamorized it's you know work right, really hard I right. don't need much sleep right right and I'll sleep when I'm lost,
0: dead or yeah yeah
1: we've lost respect for that light that light dark cycle and we know how fundamental that is in setting our circadian rhythm and then all we'll the knock on health benefits that come from respecting light so sleeping when it's dark doing stuff outside in natural sunlight when it's the day don't overconsume artificial light both during the day and then during night some interesting new research that's coming out from some of the neuroscience research labs looking at even the chromatic shift we see in colors at sunrise and sunset so those shifts that we see from oranges reds and yellows and pinks through to blues that chromatic shift can play a role in helping set our hormones not just darkness and not just lightness but actually that chromatic shift that we see so that's really cool Kind of watch sunrise and watch sunset, and I'm incredibly fortunate where I live. you can see out my window. It's a bit of a cloudy day. I look out over the ocean here in Australia. We face east, so we watch we can watch the sunrise over the ocean every day. Beautiful. Not everyone is fortunate enough to be able to watch the sunrise over the ocean from their bed. However, we all live somewhere where the sun rises every day. (laughs) Do do things like that. So I think respecting our, our need to sleep when it's dark, and if you do have trouble sleeping. You know just some of those practical tools that we can do to help us all sort of sleep more at night you know make sure you get enough exercise during the day and turn the line you know looking at your mobile phone in the middle of the night right all, all of those kinds of things make sure you're cool and I nap very very regularly in the afternoon I'm a strategic napper so I try and have a very very short 20 minute nap mid-afternoon if I get sleepy And I've always suffered from that mid-afternoon sleepiness. It's just part of my natural kind of biological rhythm. And for years, because I I was at school and university, I had to fight it if I was sitting in the lecture. For sure. Now I'm very fortunate to work for myself so I can indulge that urge. And instead of fighting it for a couple of hours, I just have a quick 20-minute nap and it gives me a second day. And it never disrupts my sleep at night because I don't sleep for too long. I sleep for about 20 minutes. So It's quite straightforward. And I think the other thing is you know there's nothing new under the sun but it's just to move our bodies in a way through the world which is again our brains evolved to move our bodies around through the world and interact and perceive and sense the world around us and we focus so much on exercise and exercising enough as if you know, you've know you got to go to the gym and flog yourself or do CrossFit or there's all of these kind of schools of thought about which exercise you should do and which is best instead of actually what our bodies and brains need is to move. And moving our bodies in a natural way through the world is what our brains require. And what we see when people get older and older is that they – Start expecting as much from their bodies and, and their brains, and really kind of that expectation that we have, especially as we get older, is an incredibly powerful influence on how we age.
0: That's amazing.
1: So sleep and exercise. I mean, and I wouldn't even say sleep and exercise, yeah, sleep and moving. movement. Man, yeah, yeah, sleep and movement. So there's nothing nothing new under the sun. Yes. Yeah. No, I love that. We just from from studies of neuroscience kind of understand what works and why and why it works and we really just need to kind of look back back to our past to get some ideas about that.
0: I love that you know and it's very foundational and it's something that I talk about often on the podcast and I also feel like because they are these free tools that we have at our fingertips every day they're often the things that we overlook mm. but they really do make such a huge impact. So, thank you for that. That was really wonderful. Can you tell us a little bit more about your book and where everybody can go and get it?
1: For sure. Well, it should be in all good bookshops here, probably Amazon. <laughs> right. Depending on where you are in the world. It's in, in the US, it's the Women's Brain book. If you Google me, Dr. Sarah Mackay, Women's Brain, it'll it'll pop up. So, yeah, I'd love, I mean, I'd love people to read. There's some things in there which people do find challenging. The PMS studies people find very, very challenging. But, you know, that's great. I like to think we can challenge people's ways of thinking and perhaps change a few health outcomes there by changing people's expectations. So if people want to go away and read that, and I have, you know, I'm online, I'm on Instagram. I only just started doing Instagram in the last year or so on Facebook for those who are slightly more old fashioned, but yeah, <laughs> Google me, you'll find me. Wonderful. Awesome.
0: Well, we will put all of that in our show notes and I really thank you for being with us today. Oh, thank you. It's been wonderful. Thanks. Thank you everyone for tuning in today. I really hope you enjoyed the episode with Sarah. You can follow her over on Instagram at Sarah Marie McKay. You can also head on over to her website, yourbrainhealth.com.au. And if you'd like to learn more about her professional development training program in applied neuroscience and brain health, head on over to theneuroacademy.com. If you know of anybody who can benefit from our episode today, or any of our episodes, we've got 98 episodes that you can share. We would greatly appreciate it. Whether that's your sister, your aunt, your girlfriend, whoever it is that can benefit from this information, we would greatly appreciate it. So share, share, share away. It means so much to us. And if you haven't left us a rating and a review, whether you listen to us on iTunes or Spotify or any other podcast platform, your ratings and reviews mean so much to us. And I love reading them. And I really thank you so much for your support and for being with us today. You can grab all of today's show notes over on the website, holisticwellness.ca forward slash episode 98. That's nine eight. Thanks so much for being with me today. And I look forward to connecting with you next week.